opportunity for you to invite people. Daniel chapter 5. Daniel chapter 5 is the story of a leader by a different name. We read it in the very first word of verse 1, Belshazzar. Leaders are funny in that oftentimes leaders put themselves up on these huge pedestals as if nothing can make them topple. There was a young politician who went to Washington, D.C. after being newly elected. He wanted to find out how the city ran. And he met an older senator who was going to explain how the politics of Washington, D.C. work. And the old senator put this young guy next to him. They were overlooking the Potomac River. He said, young man, this city is a lot like that log floating down the river. I imagine there's probably 100,000 ants, worms, and other bugs on top of that log. And probably each of them thinks that he is the one steering the log down the river. Leaders can be like that. Nebuchadnezzar was like that, we remember. And his grandson now, Belshazzar, is a selfish leader who in the midst of a party that we read about in this chapter is interrupted by God. He was the kind of a man who thought he could defy God and get away with it. The Bible says, be not deceived, God is not mocked. And whatever a man sows, that shall he also reap. If he sows to the flesh, he will of the flesh reap corruption. If he sows to the Spirit, he will reap everlasting life. So though on one hand God is very patient with people, and he waits a long time, there comes a time when enough is enough. The Bible says God's Spirit will not always strive with man. There's a time when the hammer drops and judgment falls, and judgment falls upon Belshazzar this very night that we read about. In Daniel chapter 5, Daniel, though he's not mentioned at first, is 80 years old. It's been 23 years since Nebuchadnezzar had that humiliating experience back in chapter 4. And what's strange, if you read through the book of Daniel, is you come to chapter 5, and all of a sudden, Nebuchadnezzar isn't mentioned anymore. He used to be there in chapter 4. It closes with him in chapter 4. And then we have Belshazzar. There's no record in Daniel of what happened in between. Let me give you a little bit of filling in the gap. When Nebuchadnezzar died, the kingdom of Babylon started deteriorating. It was on the decline. Nebuchadnezzar's son, named Amel Marduk, took over the throne, and he lasted for two years only. He was assassinated by his brother-in-law, Neragalizer. Neragalizer reigned for four years upon the throne of Babylon, and after he died, his son, Labashi Marduk, I know this sounds like a soap opera with weird names, it sort of is, Labashi Marduk took over the throne for nine months. Conspirators hired people to beat this young kid to death. And after he died, the conspirators put in another son of Nebuchadnezzar named Nabonidus. Problem is this, Nabonidus didn't even live in Babylon. In fact, for 13 of the 16 years of his reign, he didn't set foot once inside the city. So to maintain power over the city of Babylon, he had his son, Belshazzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, as the co-regent of the kingdom. That sort of fills in the historical gap, and we come to it now in verse 1. And it opens up with a wild party, a cocktail party. You might even say that Belshazzar was a party animal. 
But he gets interrupted by some heavenly graffiti as God writes with a finger upon the wall of the palace there in Babylon. As we go through this, I see a parallel between what's happening in Babylon and the United States of America. I honestly see many parallels in this chapter. There seems to be patterns that nations follow. When a nation becomes great, the nation becomes prideful. When the nation becomes proud and arrogant, then there's a degeneration of values. There's an increase of immorality and debauchery, and pretty soon that nation is ripe for judgment. And there comes a point when it's too late. God will act, for the Spirit of God will not always strive. Let's look at this wild party. Belshazzar, the king, made a great feast for a thousand of his lords and drank wine in the presence of the thousand. While he tasted the wine, Belshazzar gave the command to bring the gold, the silver vessels, which his father Nebuchadnezzar had taken from the temple which had been in Jerusalem, that the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines might drink from them. And then they brought the gold vessels that had been taken from the temple in the house of God which had been in Jerusalem, and the king and his lords, his wives, and his concubines drank from them, They drank wine and praised the gods of gold and silver, bronze, iron, wood, and stone. It's a futile picture, really. A drunken orgy is what verses 1 through 4 describe. They're groveling before these dumb, lifeless images. And in a minute, God, the living God, is about to speak through handwriting on the wall. Now, feasts like this one were common in ancient days. But usually women were not allowed at Babylonian feasts as such. And so the fact that concubines were there, wives plus concubines plus wine, shows that there was an absence of any moral constraint. The law was sort of disposed of. They were able to just do whatever they wanted to. And Belshazzar, the king of Babylon, is like that bug on the log. He thinks he's controlling it all. He is trusting in the fact that Babylon has never yet been defeated. Maybe he's thinking, after all, the walls are 65 feet thick outside, 300 feet tall. I have watchtowers all the way around. I'm a mighty cool person. Little did he know that at that very moment, outside the city walls, the Medes and the Persians were ready to conquer it. In fact, that night we read about in the very last verse of this chapter, the city fell. I can't help but see a parallel in this feast of Belshazzar and Western society. You know, partying is still sort of one of the hallmarks of our society. I know people who live just for the weekends. Or they hear about, hey, there's a party, man. I mean, their whole life revolves around getting together with people, letting their guard down, getting drunk, numbing the pain of their life, forgetting about the very important issues, the spiritual issues, just getting plastered. It's estimated in the United States that Americans spend $33 billion per year on alcohol. For every one heroin addict, there's 15 hardcore alcoholics who just live on this substance day in and day out. To show you how bad it can get, in Los Angeles, California, a group of people met together to discuss how to solve the drug problem among kids. Guess how the meeting started? A cocktail party. Hello. 
a cocktail party and you're going to discuss how to solve the drug problem among kids? Very, very parallel. Not only was Belshazzar a party animal, he was dumb. He defied God. He took these silver and gold vessels from the temple in Jerusalem as a defiant mockery against God and just started slamming his drinks down with holy vessels. Now, a little bit of background. Whenever Nebuchadnezzar took over a city, he would always take souvenirs of that city, certain peculiar things that marked the difference of that city with all the others. And so, since he took over Jerusalem and there was a temple to God, when the temple was destroyed, he took some of those holy vessels used to sacrifice to the God of Israel. And he had them in Babylon. Sort of like a war museum, a victory museum. You could go in and you could see artifacts from different cities and countries that he had overtaken. Belshazzar grew up in that environment and probably knew that some of those vessels were, you know, they were off guard. It's for a museum only. Belshi, don't touch these things. These are from the temple in Jerusalem. Nebuchadnezzar never would have done what Belshazzar does in this chapter. And I think what we see here is an arrogant, selfish man who is very, in a calculated way, defying God. Hey, I'm not scared of God. Give me the vessels from Jerusalem's temple. He doesn't intimidate me. And he drinks his wine with all of these women and all of his lords out of these very vessels. You know, when people get drunk, they do stupid things. And they say things they would never say otherwise. They sort of just hang loose, really loose. Sometimes people will even have sort of a fake conversion, I've noted, during about with alcohol. When I was a young Christian, I would witness to anybody, and alcoholics included, even under the influence. And I thought I saw some genuine conversions. Oh, they're weeping and repenting. And afterwards, the next morning, they didn't even know who I am. They don't remember it. So I wait now till they're sobered up before I'll share the truth with them. But people will often say and do pretty weird things. And Belshazzar is stepping out on a limb here, defying God. Again, I see a parallel with America. We are guilty as a nation of displaying Offensive material, I think, in defiance against God. Crossing those lines in a very defiant manner. Example. Some years back, the National Endowment for the Arts displayed lewd photographs. One of them was a picture of a crucifix immersed in a vial of urine. You look at that picture. It's so disgusting, you think, what artistic value does that photograph have? Answer, absolutely none. It was used to shock people. People who held certain values dear. People who held Jesus Christ dear. It was a mocking defiance against Jesus in the name of, but it's art, man. A mockery against God. I think of the gay parades who display scripture verses. And hold Bibles as they walk down the street. Hey, be whatever you want. It's a free society, but don't bring God into it. Like Belshazzar did openly defying God. Or movies that are made that make Jesus out to be a superstar on one hand, or on the other hand, a sinner like everybody else. Like in that recent Scorsese movie that was made about the life of Jesus. Or what about professors in college classrooms? who go out of their way, instead of teaching math and science, English, astronomy, to spend a lot of time in their class just 
tearing down people's beliefs in the Bible or in Jesus Christ. I've had a few professors like that. You know, when I look around at what goes on with this kind of stuff in our country, I wonder, God, why don't you deal instantly with these people? Or let me be in charge. God knows better, of course. I can relate often to James and John, who when they saw what was happening in Samaria, they said, Jesus, we'd be glad to call fire down from heaven and just smoke these people. Of course, God is a lot more patient than I am. God has a huge heart of mercy. God will wait a long time before He acts. But eventually, make no mistake, God will act. The hammer will fall and God will judge as God judges here. Now from this wild party, let's look in verse 5. A weird picture appears on the wall. In the same hour, the fingers of a man's hand appeared and wrote opposite the lampstand on the plaster of the wall of the king's palace, and the king saw the part of the hand that wrote. And the king's countenance changed. Oh, I bet. Nothing like this to sober you up quickly. His thoughts troubled him, so that the joints of his hips were loosed and his knees knocked against each other. That's a very vivid description of a guy who's very scared. The king cried aloud to bring in the astrologers, the Chaldeans, the soothsayers. The king spoke, saying to the wise men of Babylon, Whoever reads this writing and tells me the interpretation shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around his neck, and he shall be the third ruler in the kingdom. He's trying to buy his way out of this one. Now all the king's wise men came, but they could not read the writing or make known to the king its interpretation. And then King Belshazzar was greatly troubled His countenance was changed. His lords were astonished. It is said that the brightest lighting in the ancient palaces were right next to the king's throne. That's where the lampstand was, right next to the throne. So no doubt, the handwriting was right above his head. As he's grabbing the vessel, all of a sudden, this handwriting appears next to him. This heavenly graffiti. And like modern graffiti... They could see it, but nobody could understand what it meant. It was not discernible. It had to be interpreted. You drive by bridges and you think, what meaning did these people have in writing this? But it's some kind of code. It could be that it was written in Hebrew. The astrologers and all the wise men of Babylon, being Babylonians, spoke Aramaic or Chaldean. Therefore, it was not discernible to them. They couldn't figure out what it meant. Of course, this really messed up Belshazzar's mind. He was astonished, it says, and very, very frightened. I can't help but think what a picture this is, again, of modern America. The Bible says the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit because they are spiritually discerned. And there are people who go to church, they read the Bible, but they haven't come into a relationship with Jesus Christ, and they really don't understand spiritual things. It's sort of above their heads, out of their league. It needs someone to interpret the truth for them. I also can't help but think of another time when the finger of God was used to write something. In John chapter 8, they brought before Jesus a woman caught in adultery. The scribes and the Pharisees said, we caught this woman. She deserves to be stoned. The Bible says Jesus just looked on the ground and started writing in the dust with his finger. Whatever it was, and we're not told, it was enough to convict these characters who were ready to stone this woman. 
Jesus said, whoever is without sin, let him cast the first stone. All the while, he's writing something in the dust. We don't know what it was, but perhaps he was like the handwriting on the wall, writing down their secret sins. As they stand, they say, this woman deserves to be stoned. Maybe Jesus just started with the eldest Pharisee, Shlomo, lust. Jacob stole money from the temple, things they thought nobody knew about. We don't know, but they looked and (laughs) dropped the stone and walked away. There was handwriting for their life. Why was Belshazzar so astonished and his knees shook together? Because he was guilty, that's why, and he knew it. You see, if these people had been right with God, they wouldn't be afraid. They'd be excited. Hey, God's writing a message to us. This is awesome, a sign. But when you're not walking right with God, any revelation from God is very frightening. Uh Uh-oh, God sees us. God's about to speak. It has been said, people interpret what happens to them in the light of their conscience, and our consciences can make cowards of us all. Example, Adam and Eve. When Adam sinned against God in the garden, God called out for him. Adam, where are you? Adam normally would have responded to God. This time he fled He had a guilty conscience. He sought to hide himself from God. Now, Belshazzar, the king, in the midst of a degenerating society, getting drunk, doing his own thing, tuning out God, while God is trying to reveal his truth to them. The handwriting of judgment is on the wall. I can't help but see the parallel between the handwriting on the wall in Babylon and what I would say is handwriting on the wall of the United States of America. I think the handwriting is out there. For instance, from 1960 until today, there has been an increase in violent crime, as you know. But not 20% increase, not 50% increase, but a 560% increase in violent crime. And people in this country are shaking in their boots saying, what are we going to do? Why is this happening? Not only that, but divorces have doubled since 1960. Children raised in single-parent homes has tripled. By the end of this decade, 40% of all American births will be out of wedlock. 40% of all American births. But not only that, what about the educational system? You know, back in 1940s, teachers listed the top problems with students in their classroom. This is what they were. Number one on the list, talking out of turn. Two, chewing gum. Three, making noise and running in the hall. Teachers polled in the 1990s asked the same question, gave this as the top problems in their classes. Drugs? Alcohol, pregnancy, suicide, rape, and assault. Now, as Belshazzar saw this handwriting, knew he was guilty, he started shaking. He had every reason to shake. One day the Bible says that unbelievers in this world will also stand before God and they will shake. In the book of Revelation, it says when the... Wrath of the Lamb of God is coming upon the earth. The men of the earth cry out to the mountains, Fall on us! Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb who is to come. Very much of a parallel I see. Now let's look in verse 10 
As this weird picture is shown on the wall, nobody can figure it out. It's time now for a wise prophet to come on the scene. The queen, because of the words of the king and his lords, came to the banquet hall and the queen spoke saying, O king, live forever. Actually, he's going to be dead in a few hours. Do not let your thoughts trouble you or let your countenance change. There is a man in your kingdom in whom is the spirit of the holy God. And in the days of your father, light and understanding and wisdom like the wisdom of the gods were found in him. And King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, that's simply a generic term for your ancestor. In this case, it's his grandfather. Made him chief of the magicians, astrologers, Chaldeans, and soothsayers. Now Daniel comes before the king, and in verse 14, Belshazzar says, I have heard of you that the Spirit of God is in you, that light and understanding and excellent wisdom are found in you. He says all the wise men, the astrologers, couldn't figure out what this meant. Verse 16, I have heard of you that you can give interpretations and explain enigmas. Now if you can read the writing and make known to me its interpretation, you shall be clothed with purple and have a chain of gold around your neck, and you shall be third ruler of the kingdom. Now, we notice that Daniel was not at this feast. Of course, you wouldn't expect Daniel to be there, would you? You wouldn't expect Daniel to be drunk with the rest of these characters at this kind of a party. He wasn't there. It wasn't his place. Yet, he becomes the most honored guest with this strange turn of events as God honors Daniel in their midst. Interesting that Belshazzar, knowing the history of of his father Nebuchadnezzar, never took the time to even consult with Daniel over the years. You know, I bet that Daniel often went to his room and prayed a prayer like this, Lord, give me an opportunity to share with Belshazzar, even as you have given me the opportunity to preach to Nebuchadnezzar and to leave a good witness with Nebuchadnezzar, give me a crack at this young whippersnapper. I want to leave a witness with him. But he never got the opportunity until he's 80 years of age. You know, most people are like Belshazzar. They don't want to hear what you have to say, Christian. They could care less about you and your Christian lifestyle and your Bible until something happens that's dramatic or drastic in their world, like a Gulf War. Oh, then they'll fill into the churches. Or they lose someone by death or they lose their job. All of a sudden, they want you to talk to them. I remember working with many, many people in the hospitals in Southern California who would always have pet names for me. Hey, here comes the preacher. Oh, don't say that. Here comes Skip. Don't want to say those things in front of him. You know, he's a Christian. They'd always go out of their way. I'd let them do it. But I was always the first one who they would come to when they were in a fix. Skip, could you pray for me? What's that? Could you pray for me? Hey, I'd be happy to pray for you. It's a great opportunity. Joseph Parker noted that preachers of the word, you will be wanted someday by Belshazzar. You're not wanted at the beginning of the feast, but you will be there before the banqueting hall is closed. The king will not ask you to drink his wine, but he will ask you to tell him the secret of his pain and heal the malady of his heart. Abide your time. You are a nobody right now, but preacher, you will have your opportunity. They will send for you and all other friends have failed. You know, I think God has seasons for certain people. They're not going to listen to God, but when something happens where their attention is gotten, then they're open. And they're setups. I have a friend who witnessed to John Lennon before his death. I think it was a divine setup. 
He was recording an album in Los Angeles, and John Lennon was opening the newspaper and looking at the stuff that was happening and being very disgusted. My friend had a unique opportunity to share with him, and he listened for about 15 minutes. Or I think of Billy Graham and the unique opportunities he has to share with kings, princes, prime ministers of people, presidents. And you have friends. You know people who don't want to listen to you. But something happens as they walk down life's road. And all of a sudden they're very interested. And they'll look to you. Or you might be standing in line at a grocery store and somebody will look at the headlines on the newspaper and just say, what's this world coming to? You might say, glad you asked that question. (laughs) Unique opportunity. In verse 17, Daniel answered and said before the king, keep your gifts. Let your gifts be for yourself and your rewards for another. But I will read the writing to the king and I will make known to him the interpretation O king, the Most High God gave Nebuchadnezzar, your father, a kingdom and majesty, glory and honor. Because of the majesty that he gave him, all peoples, nations, languages trembled and feared before him. Whomever he wished, he executed. Whomever he wished, he kept alive. Whomever he wished, he set up. And whomever he wished, he put down. But when his heart was lifted up and his spirit was hardened in pride, he was deposed from his kingly throne and they took his glory from him. And he was driven from the sons of men. His heart was made like the beasts, his dwelling with the wild donkeys. They fed him with grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew from heaven till he knew that the Most High God rules in the kingdom of men and appoints over it whomever he chooses. You know, when you call for a man of God like Daniel, you better expect a sermon. Daniel's not going to pat him on the back and go, O king, live forever. Hope you feel good. He's going to tell him the truth. Let me tell you why this is happening, Belshazzar. You're a prideful man. You're a selfish man. Your grandfather, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar, learned this lesson. You failed to learn this lesson. And now in the next few verses, Daniel zeroes in and levels some weighty charges against Belshazzar. He didn't just say, here's the interpretation. He, like previous times, presses home the message. He says, first of all, look at verse 22. You've sinned against the light of knowledge. But you, his son, Belshazzar, have not humbled your heart, although you knew all this. Belshazzar, you are responsible for the light that you have received. You knew what happened to Nebuchadnezzar, your grandfather. You knew about who God was, yet you have defied God. You're responsible for the light that you have received. You know what? All of us are. Hey, don't worry about the pygmies in Borneo or the people who've never heard the gospel. That's what usually people ask when you share the gospel with them. What about those people who've never heard? Hey, you have heard. God will take care of them. He's just. He's merciful. But you have heard and you are responsible for the light that you have received, even as Belshazzar was. Example. Jesus leveled the heaviest judgment against the towns that he lived in. Capernaum. Chorazin. Bethsaida, around the Sea of Galilee. He said, your judgment will be more than that of Sodom and Gomorrah. Because you had me among you. I walked with you. You had the greatest amount of light, and yet you hardened your heart. And I think, I know, that God holds nations and people, individuals, responsible for the light they have received. Why? Jesus said, to whom much has been given, much is required. 
Okay, now think about it for a minute. Would you say this nation is responsible? Think of the light this nation has received. Think of the millions of churches that dot the landscape of this country. Think of the 1,400-plus radio stations that are Christian radio stations that promote the gospel day in and day out across this nation. The 279 television stations that broadcast the gospel. The bookstores, the camps, the conferences. This nation is responsible before God. And what about you? How many sermons have you heard? Well, you've heard enough to make it to heaven. You've heard enough to have the truth given to you. We hear the truth constantly, and we are responsible for what we hear. He says in verse 23, you've deliberately defied God. You've lifted yourself up against the Lord of heaven. They've brought the vessels of his house before you, and you and your lords, your wives and your concubines have drunk wine from them. And then he says in the next part of the verse, you've worshipped idols. You've praised the God of silver and gold, bronze and iron, wood and stone, which do not see or hear or know. What a contrast between a living God who can write on the wall and these dumb statues. Notice this. And the God who holds your breath in his hand and owns all of your ways, you have not glorified. Interesting thought, isn't it? There are people who say, I'm the master of my own fate. I'm the captain of my own soul. So wrote William Henley in his poem Invictus. But he was wrong. Way down the line, there's a God waiting for you. You'll stand before him. You'll find out that God all along has held your breath and been very patient with you, giving you a lot of space to change, a lot of space to turn. Now after this, the chapter concludes with a weighty pronouncement. In verse 24 comes the long-awaited-for moment, what it means. Verse 24, Then the fingers of the hand were sent from him, and this writing was written, and this is the inscription that was written, Many, many, tekel, eupharsin. Literally translated means numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. This is the interpretation of each word. Mene, God has numbered your kingdom and finished it. Tekel, you've been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom has been divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. First, many, many, numbered, numbered. Loosely paraphrased, your number's up, pal. Your number is up. It's time to give an account. The days of your life are also numbered. You won't live here forever. That's an obvious fact. James says that our days upon the earth are like a vapor. That was your life. This is your life. It appears for a moment and then it vanishes forever, the Bible says. That's why David said, Lord, teach me to number my days that I might make application to my heart for wisdom. It's appointed unto man once to die, the book of Hebrews tells us, and after this, the judgment. Think about it for just a moment. It could be that 1994 is your last year on earth. Chances are it won't be. You might live many, many years, but it could be that some of us in this auditorium will find that 1994 was our last year upon the earth. If you knew that was a fact, would you live any differently? If you say yes to that, that means that your life better change now. It means that you're not living the way that you should before the Lord 
if you would say, if 1994 were my last year, I would live differently. Numbered, your number is up. Then he said, Tekel, you've been weighed in the divine scales and found wanting. Loosely paraphrased, you are a lightweight, Belshazzar. You might, weighing yourself in God's scales, think that you're somebody important and famous and wealthy, but in God's scales, you are a fluff. You have not invested in spiritual things, and in the scales of eternity, you are a lightweight. You've been weighed in the scales. You have been found wanting. And then finally, Perez, which is the singular of Eupharsin in Chaldean, which simply means divided. Your kingdom is divided. As Daniel was standing in front of the king saying, this is what this means, right outside the walls of Babylon, the Medes and the Persians were already there. This is what happened that night, that very night. The Medes and the Persians encamped outside the city, built a dam to dam up the Euphrates River that ran right through the center of Babylon, diverted it into a water channel around the city, drying up the riverbed into the city. A drunken Babylonian soldier forgot to lock the gates. They opened the gates, marched through the dry riverbed, and conquered the city. Which, if Belshazzar would have had just a little bit of knowledge of Bible prophecy, would have figured that out. 200 years before this happened, not only was it predicted that Babylon would fall, but the name of the leader was also given, Cyrus. It says in the book of Isaiah, Behold, I will stir up the Medes against them. Isaiah 45 says, Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus. Cyrus wasn't born for 200 more years when this was written. To Cyrus, whose right hand I have held to subdue the nations before him and loose the armor of kings, to open before him the double doors so that the gates will not be shut. Numbered, numbered, weighed, divided. Look at verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Chaldeans, was slain. And Darius the Mede received the kingdom being 62 years old. Darius was the soldier, was put in charge of the army by Cyrus, the head of the Medes and the Persians. But verse 30, that very night, Belshazzar, the king of the Chaldeans, was slain. There's a last night for everyone. There's a last breath for everyone, a last statement for everyone. And all of us are weighed in God's balances. And what do the scales reveal? Are they a little top-heavy? Have you lived only for the temporal, but you've given no thought to the eternal like Belshazzar did? God weighs us in those scales. You say, yeah, but I'm not going to stand in any banquet hall like him. No, but you will stand before God. And in Revelation 20 it says, And the books were opened, and everyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. There's also handwriting regarding your life. The good news is this. Jesus Christ, when he died on the cross, erased the handwriting that was against you, giving you the opportunity to cast yourself upon the one who died for your sins so that the handwriting will be forever erased if you turn to him. The difference is choice. Think as we close the power of choice. You have Nebuchadnezzar, grandpa. You have Belshazzar, grandson. Both very, very selfish and arrogant. But one 
got the message and bowed his life to God, the other died in opposition to God. The incredible power of choice. Max Lucado wonders if the creation of the world was not like this. God placed one scoop of clay upon another until a form lay lifeless upon the ground. All of the garden's inhabitants paused to witness the event. Hawks hovered, giraffes stretched, trees bowed, butterflies paused on petals and watched. You will love me, nature, God said. I made you that way. You will obey me, universe, for you were designed to do so. You will reflect my glory, skies, for that is how you were created. But this one will be like me. This one will be able to choose. All were silent as the Creator reached into Himself, removed something yet unseen, a seed. It's called choice, the seed of choice. Creation stood in silence and gazed upon the lifeless form. An angel spoke, But what if He... You mean, what if He chooses not to love me? The Creator finished. Come, I will show you. Unbound by today, God and the angel walked into the realm of tomorrow. There, see the fruit of the seed of choice, both the sweet and the bitter? The angel gasped at what he saw. Spontaneous love, voluntary devotion, chosen tenderness. Never had he seen anything like these. Heaven has never seen such beauty, my Lord. Truly, this is your greatest creation. Ah, said God, but you have only seen the sweet, now witness the bitter. Then a stench enveloped the pair. The angel turned in horror and proclaimed, What is it? The Creator spoke only one word, selfishness. The angel stood speechless as they passed through centuries of repugnance. Never had he seen such filth, rotten hearts, ruptured promises. This is the result of choice, the angel asked? Yes. They will forget you? Yes. They will reject you? Yes. They will never come back? Some will. Most won't. What will it take to make them listen? And then the Creator walked on in time further and further into the future till He stood by a tree that would be fashioned into a cradle. With another step into the future, He paused before another tree that would be mounted on the stony brow of a hill, and He would be hung on it. Will you go down there? The angel asked. I will. Is there no other way? There is not. The angel said, Wouldn't it be easier not to plant the seed? Wouldn't it be easier not to give the choice? It would, the Creator spoke slowly. But to remove the choice is to remove the love. They stepped into the garden once again. The Maker looked earnestly at that clay creation. A monsoon of love swelled up within Him. He had died for the creation before he had even made him. God's form bent over the sculptured face and breathed. Dust stirred upon the lips of the new one. The chest rose, cracking the red mud. The cheeks fleshened, a finger moved, an eye opened. And within the man, God placed a divine seed, a seed of himself. The God of might had created earth's mightiest, And the one who had chosen to love had created the one who could love in return. And now the choice is ours. And now also the choice is up to us. 
Will we harden our hearts or will we soften our hearts? Will we go on and be like the prediction that says in the last days it will be like the days of Noah. People will be eating and drinking and giving in marriage, unaware that judgment was about to fall, thinking, that's so outdated. The handwriting is on the wall. Sooner or later, we will all stand before God. We can get ready now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to learn from history. We saw a very, very prideful, arrogant, selfish man who made the wrong choice, who defied you, and the prophet came in who was faithful to you. What a contrast we see there. And we realize this morning that we are all weighed in your balances. And what is the result? Father, I pray that we would make the ultimate choice this morning, if we haven't already, to give our life to you. Give our life to you.